Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude. There are seven episodes. This is one of them. The fog hung low to the ground as William Jackson McCullough ventured out into the misty Pacific Northwest morning in search of coffee. An almost imperceptible drizzle filled the air. Almost. Phoenix is probably snuggled into a warm blanket with two podcats in her lap right now, he thought wistfully, with a slight tinge of jealousy as he adjusted the windshield wipers to address the tiny droplets of water on the glass. Nonetheless, it was his mission to hunt the frigid wastes for breakfast food, and then drain its blood for coffee, for that coffee was the lifeblood of any successful podcasting endeavor. <laughs> Alright, so there is a joke along with this that is kind of an inside joke, and of course, as we all know, every joke is made funnier by explaining it. But this stems from when we used to live near a bagel shop, and I would send him off to go and hunt us some bagels and drain their blood for coffee and bring it back so that we could wake up in the morning. I told you, every joke is made funnier by explaining it. Right. Anyway, let's get into this episode. Episode two of our Starless Interlude. If you would like an explanation of all the things that we're going to go into, please realize that there is a long and drawn out explanation at the beginning of episode one, and I do not want to get into that again. It took a long time. It's probably boring, and I value your time too much for that. So I propose that you and I just get into the story. Before that, though, we have just a simple disclaimer. First of all, we're in no way affiliated with Erin Morgenstern or her publisher, Anchor Books. And as always, be kind to yourselves, to one another, to us, and to the authors we love. Thank you. Alrighty. So when we left off, Zachary Ezra Rollins had found a card with a B on the back that says, Patience and Fortitude, 1 a.m., bring a flower. And then, because this book is what this book is, and every other chapter is no longer about the main narrative, or so it seems, there are three paths. This is one of them. This path feels like a capstone of sorts. The first two paths that we got were the Acolytes and the Guardians, and then this seems like the final piece of a puzzle. The Keepers have this deep connection with the bees, which is just enchanting to me. I kind of get the feeling that honey is just like this slight tinge that we find in everything, whether it's the tea that our characters love to drink, or the mead that goes back to the blood of the Vikings, and then there's that feeling of something sticky and sweet dripping through everything here. I like that they're called keepers, because you think about it, beekeepers. And then they also have key in the name, keepers. <laughs> Still going to make this point, Aaron Morgenstern is one of the authors that is very happy and pleased with herself for being a clever writer. They also are keepers of keys. They are made keepers because they understand why we are here, why it matters, because they understand the stories. They feel the buzzing of the bees in their veins. But that was before. Now there is only one. And then we get Zachary Ezra Rollins yet again. This character is so... I don't know, evocatively written, I guess. What do I want to say? Like, this is, I mean, well-written, yes, but, like, the characterization of Zachary is so viscerally understandable, something that I can sympathize with and put myself into. He checks his watch three times because he's afraid he's late. These are things I do. But the actions that he is making are things that are so similar to things that I would do as an introvert with anxiety issues. He feels so real to me. I found his choice of a paper flower to be enchanting. 
It reminds me of our wedding where in lieu of actual floral bouquets, we opted for a paper one. And paper ones for our wedding party. Yeah, it was a little different and it also made it a lot easier to preserve. You don't have to worry about paper flowers wilting after all. That is very true, though it is currently in a box to protect it from Sokka because Sokka likes to chew and rip paper like nobody's business. But it was kind of fun to think back to a very fond day for us. It also makes sense that that would be the kind of flowers that they'd have at this weird literary Algonquin party. On his way to the library, Zachary runs headlong into somebody who reminds him of a polar bear in the brief two seconds that he bumps into them and falls down. And then he continues on because he has a time limit. He needs to get to the library. And I don't know how far away it is and I don't know how quickly he can get there from the Algonquin. But he seems rather nervous about this and he is so flustered that he just needs to get there. He doesn't even notice that his book is gone. So yeah, he's running off, and he's of course surmised that patience and fortitude are the names of the lions out front of the New York Public Library. So he's hoping, one, that his watch is accurate. Two, he's hoping that he's correctly figured out the answer to the riddle. And three, he hopes that his flower is acceptable. So he gets there a couple minutes late. He's worried to death that he's missed his meeting and then mysterious man shows up and he goes on this kind of romp through the city following dark brooding older gentlemen one of the first things that we know about dorian is that he was our mysterious storyteller back at the algonquin he is the one who told zachary the story about time falling in love with fate and that story is going to be referenced a number of times here. And I'm curious what this will all tell us going forward. We still don't know what the stakes are yet in all of this, but we do know that it involves infiltrating the collector's club and pulling a switcheroo between a mysterious book and... Another mysterious book. Bullfinch's mythology in this case. It has the feeling to me of this British show called The Wrong Mans, which is about this innocent guy who is going about his life and he gets drawn into this conspiracy due to a case of mistaken identity. And as he unravels this thing, he discovers that the person who's come after him was also drawn into it by virtue of a case of mistaken identity. And the person that drew that person into it was also drawn into it by a case of mistaken identity. So it's basically just everybody completely running in circles over something that they have no connection to whatsoever, other than they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so just as we get to the Collector's Club, we move into another interlude. Lost Cities of Honey and Bone. This one is kind of post-apocalyptic. Specifically, I Am Legend is the thing that I keep coming back to. <laughs> the sequences where the protagonist is just wandering these empty city streets that are completely depopulated. Everything is just these echoes of a time that was. This man lost in time. At first, the bees watched him, followed him while he walked, and hovered while he slept. They thought he might be someone else. Now the bees ignore him. They go about their own business. They decided that one man out of his depth is no cause for alarm. But even the bees are wrong from time to time. So then Zachary goes into the collector's club and he meets a woman who is essentially the receptionist. He kind of recognizes her, but I think he's so hyped up on adrenaline that he just lets things happen to him while he's not really absorbing and taking them in and analyzing them. It does feel like he's going through the motions here, moving on autopilot as best he can in a situation where he doesn't have an autopilot protocol. <laughs> this place also, though, feels like an escape room. Yeah, it really does. Either that or an RPG puzzle. Which could be the same thing. It's like a real-life RPG puzzle. Dorian has given Zachary a book, 
that he is to place in the spot that a book that Dorian wants is currently residing. And Zachary is to steal this book without being noticed. And the room that this is all being kept in with all of the gadgets and contraptions, it really, really feels like an escape room to me. These puzzles feel like something someone has constructed in order to make the clever person feel more clever. Yeah, they feel like they are less designed to protect the books than they are to reinforce your sense of cleverness and to give you that little adrenaline rush for figuring out how to do it. I remember the first escape room experience that we had and how accomplished I felt when the puzzle was to hold one object and then hold each other's hands and then put your hand on another object and it released a magnetic door. It just felt so nice and clever and amazing. And then also the things that we can remember from that experience are doing things completely wrong and having the escape room keepers, for lack of better word, just go and say, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And that sense of excitement that you get when you figure something out like that is hard to beat. So Zachary almost gets out and then is stopped turns out, by the polar bear lady, who has been called by this receptionist, who turns out was in Kat's class at Zachary's school. So now Zachary knows that he has been followed. We also know that he has been followed, but not by her until now. We also know that there had been a tracking device from his encounter on the train when he lent somebody his pen they put a tracker in that, and they've been following his phone. Neither one of which are nearby Zachary at this time, though. He left everything at his hotel, and now he can't go back. <laughs> Retroactively smart, but now he's stuck. Ultimately, he gets away, though, and goes back to Dorian, and gives Dorian back his book. From there, the two of them go on a romp through the city. And Central Park where Zachary encounters his second painted door. And this time he gets through it, because Dorian shoved him through. Before the door is painted over and Dorian is stuck on the other side. I'm always really fascinated by the way that transition happens, because Zachary gets covered in the paint that got thrown on. This gold and white and sparkly stuff is all over his coat, his hair. And it's a very particular sensory experience. You can almost feel the weight of a glob of paint just spread over your back like that, but also it's honey colored. So he goes to the only place he possibly can, which feels a lot to me like that space in the good place that's all the scaffolding with the keeper guy that likes frogs, where it's all, to me, very dark, exterior but well lit where Zachary is and at the end of this is an elevator almost that same hotel elevator feel that like the Tower of Terror has the thing that I actually kept thinking of was when you start a video game and particularly a first-person perspective one and your only choice is to go forward naturally the first thing Zachary tries to do is to see if he can go backward which is what I always do <laughs> Upon discovering that the obvious way is the only way at this point, he moves forward and without any better ideas, he pushes the button. It also has the feel of the first Bioshock. Yeah, that kind of art deco feel. So with that, we get a bit of a revisit to our pirate friend from the very first chapter. So at the beginning of this very short chapter, the pirate tells the girl not just the single story she requested, but many stories. It's like he's trying to draw out their time together. He's trying to fill their story with so much other story as a connection, as a kind of love language. And so the girl manages to sneak away the keys to the cage, open it up without the guards noticing, because the guards must have been super sleepy. 
And the two of them steal away together and share a kiss without the intrusion of the bars between them. It has this feeling of something fleeting and ephemeral, but also eternal. Then it kind of fades to black as the two of them make their way out. Our next chapter does not concern Zachary Ezra Rollins, which is a little unusual given that so far the book has gone Zachary Ezra Rollins, break, Zachary Ezra Rollins, break, mostly in order except for the very beginning. So this one is, unlike the others, specifically in the, quote, real world. And it concerns the person who painted the door and the person who we will eventually discover is Zachary's mother, the fortune teller. I really like this because we learn something about Zachary's mother and how she raised him. I don't know about you, but I really like her. She feels warm and comforting and inviting in just a few strokes of the pen. Yeah, the sense of hospitality that I got from her was really important. Kindness to a stranger who is technically vandalizing, although granted the doorway they got painted is absolutely beautiful and should probably have been preserved. But the way she approached the painter, I thought, was warm and welcoming and empathetic. And there's more of that honey here, honey child, used as a diminutive, but also as something that is disarming and intimate. And it also seems to call back to something deeper. Honey means something important to the painter. And honey is also an endearment. A lot of people call each other honey, especially people that they are close with and love. I love how Madame Love Rollins gives the painter the tarot deck. And I love her description of the deck where she's like, this will tell a story. Instead of telling a fortune, it's telling a story, which seems like a really unique way to present that. And given that this is a story about stories, and the painter is someone who is acutely aware of these meta-narratives. I think that's a really smart way to discuss this. I think that tarot, while I don't believe it can tell the future because I don't believe that our fates are written in the stars, not really. I believe in free will, but I also believe that some things are much more likely and almost inevitable. But we can change a lot. I think of tarot as being a way to organize your thoughts and your plans in a way, rather than telling you specifically what the future will hold. It's a whole bunch of vague imagery that we attach to the stories we tell about ourselves. And the stories we tell about ourselves influence the paths that we chart. If I tell myself a story about me as a hero, that changes how I am going to seek to act going forward. If I tell myself stories about me as a gritty anti-hero, I'm going to make different choices as a result of that. But it's a way that we can frame those internal narratives about what kind of people we are, about what we're going to do with our lives, and the opportunities that we face, and the challenges we face. Our next chapter is from Fortunes and Fables which is Dorian's book. And it starts off with a retelling of this story of fate and time and love and the vengeful stars who tore them apart. Stars are bastards in this book. <laughs> <laughs> so these stars are malevolent and pitiless. And cold. Yeah, cold and distant. Of course, the titular Starless Sea is a place where they hold no dominion, where stories can exist apart from them, which I think is an interesting bit of imagery there. And now we come back to Zachary Ezra Rollins. That was kind of a cliffhanger. He goes down the elevator and then what happens? And then we get a whole bunch of other stories. <laughs> but now he's still sitting in the elevator. It is the fanciest elevator he has ever occupied. But he's not actually sure it's moving. 
I know that feeling where you don't have any indication of visual movement, and by the time you know, you've achieved a steady pace, it's all equilibrium. You don't have any sense of acceleration. We get a lot of the bee and key and sword motif. Symbols play such a large part of this book, especially those and then the heart and the crown and the feather. He arrives and finds a locked door and then a couple alcoves. One has a set of dice and they're six-sided dice and each one has a bee, a key, and a sword, as well as a heart, a feather, and a crown for six sides. So he rolls, because there's a little thing that says, roll me. Very Alice in Wonderlandy. <laughs> so he rolls them and gets all hearts, which is possible, but not probable. I'm not going to go into the statistics of what it would be to get all the same side, but know that these are things that in school I had to do. On the other side of the room, the other alcove has a drink for him. And of course, the drink me, if we wanted any more of a direct parallel to Alice's adventures in Wonderland. So he does, and it's a pleasing dram, if I do say so myself. I'm not sure if it's alcoholic. I don't think he's sure if it's alcoholic. But he's definitely uh, starting to feel the effects of all the drinks that he had at the Algonquin at this point. Not to mention coming down off the adrenaline high. And <laughs> also his contacts are starting to get itchy, which I know that feeling all too well. I wore contacts for a long time. A long time. Many, many, many years. And I stopped. Not necessarily initially because my eyes got all itchy and gross and well, they got gross, but they didn't get itchy. Contacts make my eyes look very, very red and very, very scary. <laughs> but they hadn't historically itched until I got a little older. But I wore them for a long time. It turns out, like, there's very specific contact solution that I can have that doesn't make me look like I'm demon seed. But it just got to a point where it wasn't as convenient as I wanted it to be or as comfortable as I needed it to be. So glasses it is. So after he rolls the dice and drinks his dram, the door opens and he encounters the keeper. Again with that very escape room feel. Yeah, the keeper is like half librarian, half hotel clerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And initially the keeper tries to turn Zachary away. We're closed for business. No one comes here. Why are you here? We weren't expecting you. But his mean-to-be-a-gracious host overrides his surprise that there is company. Once he realizes that Zachary doesn't have a way back since he came through this temporary painted door, and we hear our second reference to Mirabelle. The keeper is pretty much fine... He knows that Zachary didn't ask to come there and wasn't trying to put him in an inconvenience. But it's still very clear that the Keeper doesn't like any interruptions to his status quo. Although he seems to prick up a bit when he discovers that Zachary rolled all hearts. Or at least his curiosity is piqued. We'll see what that means. Very likely. The keeper shows Zachary to a room, and it turns out that he was expected somehow. We don't know how. The keeper doesn't even seem to know how, but the room is very clearly for Zachary. It's even labeled that way. And I think the keeper just kind of rolls with it. But at the same time, he's like, well, I guess I have no choice. This was going to happen. This is my lot in life. <laughs> <sighs> This room seems pretty cozy. Has a, a real Sylvia Beach Hotel feel to it. <laughs> like the old style chairs and the comfy old style bedding, all the crushed velvet. I love that this feels so cozy and comforting. And Zachary seems to really love this place too. It's almost like it was created for him. And of course, this underground cavernous library hotel thing that he has found himself in is full of cats. <sighs> I love hotel cats. 
I think that Aaron Morgenstern also loves hotel cats. She seems like good people. Yeah, the thing that really struck me is that sense of exhaustion as he just takes off his coat. He just kind of flumps. Yeah, I've had those days where like I've been driving a long time. I've been busy. I've had so much going on in my brain. And then finally, I arrive at a bed that I can just collapse onto. And I do the bare minimum to undress and then collapse. <laughs> I really empathized with that. Alrighty. And our next little interlude into Fortunes and Fables, The Key Collector. I love this because this is a little story about someone who collects things not because they're valuable, but because he just likes keys and he's really fascinated by all these new ones that he runs across. And then at a certain point, people just start gifting him keys. It kind of feels like how you start off just having a few of these things on your desk, people assume you like them, and then they just start giving them to you. And next thing you know, you've got a collection going. Let's see, what are those kind of things that happen for me? I have not a large collection, but a decent collection of enamel pins. The thing that I like collecting is playing cards. Man, I really love playing cards. And that comes from when I was a kid and my older sister taught me how to play rummy. I was more happy with the playing cards than I was with the game. I like the game, don't get me wrong. I like the camaraderie of actually playing things with my friends and family, but I love artistic and beautiful things that people have done with playing cards which is how I wound up with such a large amount of the Name of the Wind playing cards because I was like, oh, Echo Chernick drew playing cards for the Name of the Wind and I have an obscenely large amount of money that I am willing to give to that Kickstarter. So I did. <laughs> and we even have one of the prints of one of the playing cards, the Jack of Hearts from one of the decks up on our wall because it's Kvothe playing his lute in my favorite part of the whole series, which is him lost in the woods while he is lost in grief. I was so happy <laughs> and I love that just so much. I want more people to just say, hey, I saw this deck of playing cards, here you have it because I love this. Yeah, this is a great little section here. I'm not sure how it ties into everything, but it definitely captures that mood. I know how it ties into everything. And it has to do with the woman who wants to find a specific key. Interesting. At the end of the chapter, the key collector disappears. Dun, dun, dun. So after that, Zachary takes a little bit of time after he wakes up to explore his surroundings. And first thing he discovers is that there's room service. Yes. <laughs> and in the morning, I'm getting waffles. What? Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep wondering, who does the room service down here? Oh, you do, do you? Yeah. I mean, is it the keeper? The keeper doesn't strike me as someone... <laughs> Who would be this whimsical? Who's doing this then? I'm not telling. So Zachary gets some excellent pastries out of the deal and a cup of coffee. And everything kind of has this air of honey around it. The kind of coffee that he gets almost feels like sort of a Greek coffee or Turkish coffee, where it's that really strong, almost sweet and bitter at the same time. It'll wire you like all hell. <laughs> I like the way that room service works. It's just a request card in a dumbwaiter. But the kitchen, as Zachary will call it, is also willing to clean his suit and anything he needs. So then he opens up the closet and finds that not only are there clothes that more or less fit him, which isn't in itself terribly surprising. I mean, hey, it's t-shirt size type stuff. Right, he's roughly average size, these are roughly average size. Cool. But the shoes all fit his feet perfectly. And shoes are hard. 
I am a rather short person and I have large feet for my height. I wear men's size shoes. I also wear men's shoes because they're not pink. Nothing against pink for people who like pink. In fact, when I was at DigiPen, there was this one girl who I adore the hell out of because she walked into this place that is quite literally 80% guys and kind of reminded me of Elle from Legally Blonde. You could easily think that she is a ditz by all of the pink, the fuzzy pen, all of this stuff. She's not. She is not remotely ditzy. She is very intelligent. She just loves pink. And she was true to herself. And she is one of the best designers that I have ever run into. And I think we should be encouraging people who you don't think of as the stereotypical programmer or designer for video games. I think we should be encouraging more of them to be creating them. Soapbox done. It kind of reminds me of how anytime I see a guy wearing purple or pink openly and proudly, I always feel a little bit more respect for them because I know that they have made this decision because they like those colors, not because they are something that society has told them guys should like. Also guys that wear nail polish. Exactly. Or color their hair bright, loud colors. So Zachary goes exploring and also gets a pair of eyeglasses from the keeper. Apparently the keeper just has a collection of things like, here's a drawer of eyeglasses. Find one that fits. It's a little weird. It speaks to how this place used to be full of people. And now it is distinctly not. It reminds me a little bit of the library in Avatar The Last Airbender, presided over by the spirit owl. It's him and his foxes. Out in the desert, underground. There's nobody else there, but you have all of these shells meticulously organized and... The emptiness is very striking. In this case, it's just Ezra, the Keeper, and a bunch of cats. Or so we think. Also the kitchen. Right, the kitchen, the mysterious kitchen and laundry facility. <laughs> to the point where actually Zachary asks, but aren't there residents? Not currently, no. And then the Keeper is just terse and says, is there something else you need? Kind of in that, good day. <laughs> I think the Keeper has been enjoying the ability to not have guests that he has to tend to, so he can just sit and read in a cozy corner. He also writes a lot. I wonder if he's the one writing our story. Are you saying that he's Aaron Morgenstern? No, and I'm also not saying that he is the writer of our story, because that is never truly explicitly stated. But he's writing all the time. He's writing even when he is looking up. He does seem to do it almost instinctively and unconsciously. So at this point, we get a couple of questions directed from Zachary to the Keeper. One is about Mirabelle, and the Keeper's face falters. He seems like he might be mildly annoyed, but he also is like, how do you know Mirabelle? Mirabelle seems like a bit of a troublemaker in the Keeper's eyes. Maybe. He also wonders how accurate Sweet Sorrows is in describing this space that he has found himself in. Zachary wonders if the dollhouse is real. It's sort of like reading a book that's nominally set in your favorite city or the city where you live and seeing how much of it actually bears resemblance. I'm reminded of Cherie Priest's Bone Shaker, which takes place in a weird alternate universe historical steampunk Seattle and trying to find the connections with real life Seattle where I grew up and figuring out if these are things that are just literary inventions because of wanting to tell a particular story or if these are things that were just invented because the author didn't know any better or if it's how it actually was. There are definitely some stories that the author just didn't know any better. And I am reminded of one specifically. 
and you know what I'm going to talk about. So in the city of Forks, Washington, there is a hotel that quite literally changed its name because Stephanie Meyer, Meyer, Myers. I think it's Meyer. Because Stephanie Meyer screwed up the name of the hotel in her book. She also screwed up a lot of the rest of Forks in her book. But we've stayed at the hotel. It was a fun experience. Went out to La Push. It's a lot of fun. If you have the chance, do so. Avoid the twilight stuff. Just enjoy the scenery. The natural scenery around La Push and that beach is gorgeous. I would recommend it just on its own merits. Go there. The entire Pacific coast up and down Washington and Oregon is filled with these gorgeous sea stacks and rocky beaches, sandy beaches. You can see some gorgeous sunsets. You have kite flying. You have driftwood. You have all sorts of stuff out there. I love the North Pacific coast. This particular trip was in November. Everything was foggy and wet and cold and so, so, so lovely. There is a black pebble beach that we went to. <sighs> I remember we constructed a driftwood bonfire and found a spot out of the wind and enjoyed the warmth. We were getting back to our rooms, just absolutely soaked. Like our socks were all soaked through and then hanging them out over the heating vent and then putting on a nice clean dry pair of everything and just enjoying the coziness. Oh, it was lovely. If you can't tell, we like atmospheric dreariness. Call it climatological Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Whatever. Storms and cold and rain. And then that feeling that you get when you come out of it and you just curl up in all of the cozy. Back to Zachary's story, though, he finds a doll that is kind of like a Matryoshka doll. So the first one is a wooden doll painted like a woman wrapped in a robe of stars. Within the lady in her robe of stars is an owl. Within the owl is another woman wearing gold. Her eyes are open. Within the golden woman is a cat. Its eyes the same shade of gold as the woman who came before. Within the cat, a little girl with long curly hair and a sky blue dress who is more interested in something else beyond the person looking at her. The tiniest doll is a bee, which is about the right size to be an actual bee. I have a feeling that there is a reason that this doll exists within this harbor of the Starless Sea. And so after a little more exploring, he finally encounters Mirabelle. Turns out he's encountered her before when she was dressed as Max from Where the Wild Things Are. And now she has taken her wig off and her hair is various shades of pink, starting with pomegranate at the roots and fading to ballet slipper at her shoulders. She strikes sort of this punk rock figure. I also get the sense that she has almost an older sister relationship here with Zachary. Even in just the few paragraphs that we've got with them before they set off on their next adventure, immediately they start by deciding what they're going to call one another. She decides that she's going to call him Ezra, and he will call her Max, which they both seem to find agreeable. Speaking of names, Zachary refers to Dorian, and Max looks at him and cocks her head and goes, Oh, is that what he's calling himself? How Oscar Wilde indulgent of him. More cleverness from the author. And Zachary tells her that Dorian has been captured by the people at the Collector's Club. And her immediate reaction is, well, we ought to go get him back. Which is where we leave you. Until two weeks from now. I do enjoy Mirabelle quite a bit so far. And I'm looking forward to more adventures with her. Now, full disclosure, while you haven't finished this book, you have listened to it on road trips and so you've listened a little further than where we are right now not by much though not by much but you have a little more understanding of who mirabelle is and their characterization together 
All right, so now we come to our characters that we like and that we want to focus on. I defer to you. No, no, no. You're going to go first. Oh, I'm going to go first. Okay. You are going to go first because I have picked two just in case you pick the same one as me. All right. So the character I chose was Madame Love Rollins. I really loved her radical acceptance of the door painter. That just seemed meaningful. It would have been very easy for Madame Rollins to kick her out or shoo the door painter away or just have a superficial encounter that was nothing more. Instead, she invited her into her shop while it was still closed. She gave the door painter tea and also offered her a place to stay. That is the kind of radical hospitality that speaks of someone who views other people as radically important in and of themselves. And I loved it. Another thing that we get about Madame Love Rollins, and this might not be explicitly told, but it's implicit. She has this radical acceptance and love not just for this little stranger that is technically vandalizing her building, but she just has this radical love for just about everyone, especially including her son. One thing that we didn't mention, because for one thing, I, I wish that we didn't have to call out someone's sexual orientation in order to feel empathy for them or to know enough to go on with the story with the right paradigm in mind. But Kat, in the previous section, we didn't specifically state, but used a term that I find funny and adorable when referencing the fact that Zachary is gay. And I believe it was something along the lines of orientationally unavailable to women. I, again, applaud Aaron Morgenstern, for writing a gay character that isn't just, this character is gay, you know, this character is a character, this character is someone that I can sympathize with, empathize with, because of a lot of characterizations about him. And there is the implication that there might be a love story because we know that he is not straight, but there isn't anything about him lusting after anyone. It's continuing on with that comfy sweater of a book. We also know that Zachary is black. The book does not interrogate anything to do with his race, and he doesn't experience any prejudice. That's not what this book is about. That's not what the book is meant to be. But I think that does just the tiniest bit of disservice in that in reality, there might be a slight bias or barrier to the easy relationships that he forms. Yeah, it's not something that we really get to see how his experience might be different had his skin color been different in the United States. But I think that in this particular instance, in the same way that his experience as a human being is not colored by his sexual orientation or his romantic orientation, his experience as a character is also not affected by his skin tone. So, with that out of the way, who's your character? I chose the Keeper. I have a feeling that he is one of those people that is kind of performatively grumpy, but he has that soft place inside, that very empathetic spirit. He wants to be the gracious host, but he's also mildly annoyed that he has to have responsibilities. He wants things to be just so. He's very particular, and any interruption to that just so-ness makes all of the little feathers on him ruffle. I think that his perfect life would just be to be writing at his desk with a cat that occasionally plays with his pen so that he can be performatively grumpy at the cat, and he can just go through his life with all of this comfort and his routine and his choices, and no distractions other than his cats. <laughs> Sounds like someone I know. <laughs> and maybe Mirabelle. But my backup would have been the kitchen, because I find them enchanting. 
And the kitchen itself, they're a character. This mysterious whatever to be found down the dumbwaiter that is overly eager to be hospitable. Suspicious. Maybe. So now let's talk about our favorite game experiences. What do you have this week? I've mentioned before in last week's episode that when I play games, I don't tend to go for things that are overly challenging. Like that's not my main drive, which is funny that my next game experience that I want to talk about is Ori and the Blind Forest before the definitive edition came out. That game is gorgeous. The music is gorgeous. It feels lovely. Death in the game... You don't have that long, you died, and then reload thing that happens so often that gives you that, you should take a break now because you're pissed the fork off, and then leads you to never go back. I am an experienced designer. I appreciate so much the things that you can tell an experienced designer put so much thought into. There are three main battles, four really, in Ori and the Blind Forest. They're not really battles. They're platforming challenges. And I'm going to say this right now. I generally hate, with a passion, hate things that make me go fast. Because I want to explore. It's what I want to do. I want to be plopped in a place and go the wrong direction. Because... I want to see what's to the left before I go to the right. I want to make sure I'm not missing things, that there's not going to just be a, a gate to an experience, so I have to play it all over again, which I have done because things have happened that you can't undo. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to do the thing. So the second dungeon-y thing in Ori and the Blind Forest ends with an escape. Also, Ori in the Blind Forest counts how many times you die. Before the Definitive Edition, there were no checkpoints in the escape. And I was determined I was going to get out of there. I was going to get out of the Ginzo tree. The platforming, the movement, the jumping, everything in that game feels so good to do. The colors and the art... The music, the feel, the experience of that game is just so viscerally... Oh, I'm not good at platformers, as evidenced by 400 and some odd deaths in Ori and the Blind Forest before this point. But I had so much fun. And then about a week before the Definitive Edition came out, I got through the Ginzo tree. <laughs> and I was just... Yes! <laughs> the whole time. I was just so happy. I recall certain screams of joy echoing throughout our apartment after that. It's really enchanting. <laughs> so what about you? My game experience is on the analog side. This was a D&D &D game that our friend put together for Christmas. And she had everyone over. It was a huge gathering. Okay, so this was also our D&D &D game that I think we had 11 players at once at one point. Right. And everyone brought food and drinks and snacks. And I remember that our GM had prepared special little bottles that would be thematically appropriate throughout the night that were part of puzzles. We were playing D&D 3.5, and we had our core group of people who were there pretty much every week, and then a revolving cast of satellite players who would come in and out, as the case may be. I think we had a core of, like, seven players. Yeah. <laughs> Plus one character who was sort of the shared PC that we would throw in whenever we felt like it. Depending on how many people were there. And I just remember this experience was so fun. Like normally giant games like this can get a little dragged down and regular sessions on this tended to, but for a single holiday gathering where everyone was 
you know, in good spirits, we were all having a lot of fun. This really scratched that itch. It was just a great experience. Our DM put so much time and effort into making this a fun experience for everyone. The reason that our games got so big and that we had so many players is because she wanted to say yes to everyone who wanted to play with her. She was welcoming and lovely and, I mean, she is welcoming and lovely. I'm not going to say was because that sounds like, whatever, sounds like an ending that isn't there. I love her. I love that she was so willing to give herself so much extra work to just keep track of not just 11 players, but we had, when her game started, before I started, they had to have extra characters for the two players that were playing, which were still canon to our story. So some of our 11 players had multiple characters. We had Christmas crackers and we had those enchanted bottles. She crafted this experience in a way that inspires me as a DM. Yeah, there's a reason why it grew as big as it did. It's because every one of us would go back to our homes and our other friend groups and say, oh, you will not believe the thing that we did in D&D this weekend. <laughs> and then inevitably, our friends would be like, ooh, can I come? I want to see this. And then she'd say yes, because that's the kind of person she is. Yeah, that was a special campaign. I also remember this was one where she actually let us get away with our tactic for taking over a hostile keep was unionizing their hench people. <laughs> <laughs> I also will never think of mimics the same way again. Yeah, that became a running joke. <laughs> but that was just such a wonderful, welcoming experience where everyone was just playing around, being goofy, exploring, and... Like that whole segment here where Zachary was trying to get into the, the thing, that reminded me so much of this experience that I couldn't help but think of it. Also, it led to us having more lasting friendships with more people. Yeah, that was just a great campaign. So, with that out of the way, let's talk about comfort game recommendations. This is your turn first. All right. So, mine is... Not necessarily a game that is a warm blanket, but I go to it like one anyway. That would be XCOM Enemy Unknown. This is a game that I will go back to time and again, and the reason for it is that it's a game where things go wrong in spectacular ways and interesting ways, and you never know what it's going to be. It's got fun procedural elements and... The story, such as it is, is pretty loose, but you start building these individual characters that maybe you name after real-life people you know, and then you start building your own little emergent narratives off of their exploits that go above and beyond just what happens in the game. And it's always a lot of fun for me to think about these alternate adventures of my friends and me fighting off an alien invasion. It's just a lot of fun. The sequel is also really good, but I think the first version is probably the most easily accessible to just pick up and play. One thing I remember is when XCOM came out, so many of my Facebook friends having conversations about, well, then this person and this person in my friend group died. The number of people who named their characters after their loved ones and their friends. Oh my gosh, that was hilarious to me. It was so funny to me that so many people were like, here's my narrative of this game, and you were there, and you were there, and you died, and you died. In retrospect, maybe it wasn't the kindest thing. Oh, it was hilarious, though. I loved it. But yeah, that's my comfort game. What's yours? My comfort game is a game that has been released over and over and over and over for the last, oh my god, it's been nine years. <laughs> Skyrim. Especially if you are someone like me that likes to play games for the experience and not necessarily for the challenge and have 
for ostensibly the reason of I don't like not being able to pick up everything. <laughs> Putting myself on God mode on the game just before the game starts, just God mode it on the PC version <laughs> so that I don't die. I still find it challenging and fun, but also I can pick up everything. I don't have to ever be encumbered. I found myself quite often if I needed to escape from schoolwork or work work or stress, going and beating the crap out of a dragon, super wonderfully worth it. But also all of the stories, all of the side quests, all of the things that you can do in that game, the vastness of that environment and how pretty it is and how much prettier it can be with mods. Holy buckets. It felt so good. And sometimes you'd wind up with hilarious adventures in physics, which was even better. Yeah, Skyrim was a lot of fun for me too. I always remember that Horses and me had a very complicated relationship. I know, oh my gosh. Like, every time I'd buy a horse, the horse would die in some hilarious fashion. And really soon after you bought it, too. Yeah, one ride. I never got more than one ride on a single horse. The first horse I bought was killed by wolves. The second horse fell off a cliff and died. The third one was killed by a giant. The fourth horse, <laughs> well, that one fell off a cliff and then was killed by a giant. <laughs> Why did you keep buying horses? Because I didn't want to walk everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have much luck with horses, but at a certain point, it became really funny to see how my horses would die. Didn't you also play that on Xbox? Yes. And then the reason that I got it for PC was because the treasure chests in the treasure hunt wouldn't spawn. Made me sad. So, Steam sale, mine now. And it looked great with that new HD textures pack too. Not gonna lie, it probably looks really, really, really good on whatever system is current, because we all know that before we ever get Morrowind or Oblivion again, which would be really fun and nice, just saying, we're going to get Skyrim another 30 times. Anyway, go ahead. So now let's talk about book recommendations. Ah. What's your recommendation this week? I'm going to go with one of my favorite stories. If you don't count the movie that most everybody associates with it, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Specifically, I'm going to go with the annotated Alice, which is the version of the book and through the looking glass that I own. I don't know if it's apparent or not, but I like to analyze the crap out of my stories. <laughs> I like knowing the stories behind the stories. And so having the annotated version of the book is really the way that I enjoy reading it. It's full of footnotes, anecdotes, explanations about why this book that is whimsical and nonsense exists in the way that it does. I find more comfort and joy in the narrative of the book. And there are a couple of film adaptations or miniseries adaptations, specifically the one that stars Natalie Gregory, that are closer to the actual story, that take it as less of a drug trip and more of this adventure through childhood, through the silliness and whimsy. I love the portal fantasy aspect. I love that style of story where you're taking this mundane world and flipping it on its head or taking your characters to a place that has been there all along, but that they had no idea was there until they looked under the surface. Same thing with the Starless Sea. I love The Wizard of Oz. I love Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Alice in Wonderland is that prototypical portal fantasy. It's one of the earliest ones I can think of. And I think it still holds up. And I think that the original text can still be read to a child for the most part. <laughs> I'd probably have to edit a couple little things. But that story itself is enchanting. And it allows for the child brain to be all full of nonsense. Cool. I'm glad you like that. 
I know you don't particularly care for the story. Yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Eh, you're not a fan of whimsy, for whimsy's sake. No. Things need to have a purpose. That's the thing where we differ. For me, things just need to be. They don't need to have a purpose. So, uh, my choice was All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. This is best described as cyberpunk meets, I guess, magic punk. <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe it. It's hard to really put into words exactly, but it's also about a pair of star-crossed lovers, one of whom is this boy genius who grows up wanting to go to the stars and explore other worlds and colonize new planets. And there is a girl who is part of a coven of witches and magic practitioners dedicated to preserving our planet. So it's about the push and pull of these two warring impulses. The desire to go other places versus the desire to preserve the places that we already have. And these two characters are striving to find a balance between human invention and the natural world. And it's cataclysmic in their efforts. Just the level of destruction that's caused by the conflict is devastating. And at the same time, it's personal. And you can see these seeds of hope and growth throughout it. It manages to be exciting and romantic and funny all at the same time. I think that it's a great book if you want to read something that really scratches that fantastical itch, but also acknowledges the realities of the world that we live in now. And it really speaks to the way that the difference between a utopia and a dystopia is oftentimes just about what rung you are on the existing social ladder and how these sorts of conflicts get created. I really strongly recommend it. I think anyone could have a lot of fun with this, especially if you are someone who enjoys a satirical romp. So yeah, that's my recommendation. And I am actually going to take you up on that recommendation as soon as I finish Lovecraft Country. Sounds good. That will be my next book. Awesome. And now it is time for quotes from the Starless Sea. So the quote I chose was, only if you want to know, honey child. I picked this one just because it was so evocative. So on the one hand, you had honey child as term of endearment and also as accurate narrative descriptor for this door painter who seems to have this connection to the Starless Sea and all of the bees and honey associated therewith. I thought that was important and also, the part of it that's only if you want to know. You don't have to know your future. It's okay to not want to know your future. It's okay to take fate as a suggestion. It's okay to build your own. I thought that was a really smart quote, and I thought that it really fit with everything that we were seeing in the story. What do you have? My quote is from the little interlude where we get to revisit the girl and the pirate. But this is not where their story ends. This is only where it changes. A lot of people have this whirlwind romance idea that ends at happily ever after when they get married. If that is your end goal and the marriage is it and you expect that everything will just keep going, you're deluding yourself. Your story doesn't end your love story most likely does not end at that goal post, that life goal, that thing that you're supposed to want. It may or may not change, but it will continue. At least that's the goal, I hope. Well, and if your marriage represents the happiest moment in your relationship, you've got nowhere to go but down. That's kind of sad. Also, I would hope, for most of us, it's not the truth. And in that case, I don't think you should want it just because other people think that you should want it. It represents a pivot point, a place where things can change and grow. It's a milestone. It's not an end point. But I think that that's the case for a lot of our 
existence. This is not where something ends, it's where something changes. If we come across new knowledge, it's not where our beliefs ended, it's where our beliefs changed. It's where our knowledge changed, where our experience of life has changed. It's where our story has changed. I think that's really wise. Thank you. And with that, I think it's time to wrap up this voyage through this part of the Starless Sea. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone, a Starless Interlude, where we will be covering pages 170 through 250 of the U.S. paperback edition of the Starless Sea. Special thanks to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And a special thanks also to Aaron Morgenstern, who has created this harbor on the Starless Sea that we have enjoyed exploring. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. If you'd like to support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash waystonepod. There you can find early access to our podcasts as well as Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, artwork, fan polls, opportunities for engagement, and ways to interact with us. Those two things meant the same thing. Cool. I reiterated, repeated, and otherwise repeated myself. Or restated. Yeah, you're right. I did that too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding. Ding! Sneeze if you're going to. I, I will if I'm going to. <laughs> I, it just didn't. <laughs> like I knew it was going to, and then it just went away. <laughs> if I could control it, I would. <laughs> <laughs>